how well do you know the internet? Until two weeks ago, I thought that I knew it pretty well. After all, I spent a good chunk of my day browsing Reddit and 4chan, and I'm always up to date with the latest memes and circle jerks. I've been a denizen of the internet since the early days of Fortune City pages and IRC channels, and a regular ever since. Then, about a year ago, somebody introduced me to the Shadow Web, a sort of secret layer of the internet that you will not find by googling or looking up message boards. There are no in-links from the surface web to the shadow web. And no, this isn't the deep net, in case you were thinking about that. Not about websites with gore videos or freak accidents. I've seen those. I assure you this is something far more twisted. I never asked what his name was. He was a regular who came to the gas station where I worked at as an attendant for the last year. Every time he came in, he would buy 20 to $50 of UKASH vouchers, which I assume were for porn subscriptions. I think it was a combination of his beige polo shirts and receding hairline that gave me the creepy vibe of a pervert. Hey, you ever heard of the shadow web? I remember him asking me casually as he counted $300 from a wad of $20 bills. I hadn't, so I shook my head. Then he looked through his wallet and withdrew a little slip, one about the size of a credit card. If you want to find out, he whispered, and he leaned towards me and slid the piece of paper into my chest pocket. I gave him his vouchers and he left, and I never saw him again. Not long after, I left the job to return to school. It wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that I came across the old, yellowy uniform with that one piece of paper still in the front pocket. When I opened it and read its content, I immediately recalled my encounter with the creepy customer. The piece of paper had instructions on how to get to the gateway of the shadow web. There were a lot of steps, some a little bit more sophisticated than others. Unfortunately, I was both tech-savvy and curious enough to follow them. The first thing you'll want to know about this shadow web is that you do not want to go there. I've seen plenty of fucked up things on the web, but nothing remotely comes close to the things that I saw on the shadow web. Thinking back, I should have noped the fuck out the instant that I saw the front page. I don't know why I hadn't. Maybe something was wrong with me. When I got to the gateway page, which resembles those of uh, welcome pages that pop up when you use free Wi-Fi at the airport or the mall, the first thing that I noticed was the word corpse It was underneath a search field among 30 or other words, which I assume were the most commonly looked up things on the shadow web. Things like skinning and mutilation. That would have been my cue to X the fuck out. There were a lot of other things too, other than sexual content and graphic gore footage. Things like instructions on how to make DIY roadside bomb. Things like a Craigslist for cannibals and people who wanted to be eaten by cannibals. Things like a marketplace to buy and sell stolen identities, either individually or in bulk. I spent almost an hour reading up on leaked war documents and diplomatic cables on a site called Avenge.schwab. The website looked very retro, if you know what I mean. 
The layout had frames and each frame had its own scroll bar. When I found myself clicking on links without thinking twice, I realized I had become comfortable on the shadow web. Don't ask me how I came across the next website. Curiosity got the better part of me, and I clicked on things that I really shouldn't have. I'll spare you the actual name of the site because I know some of you will make the same mistake that I did, thinking that it can't be that bad. But trust me, it can. When I got there, I noticed the UKASH logo at the bottom of the page, indicating that paid services were available. It was in fact a live webcam show, but you only paid if you wanted to be the director. Viewing was free. Beneath the live feed of a webcam was the logo in page to a chat room. It prompted me for a screen name when I clicked on the join button, so I entered ASDFASDFJ, like I always do when commenting on, you know, adult websites or X videos. As soon as I got the pass to log in, a torrent of messages floated the screen. Most of the messages were in English. A few were in Japanese, and I think were somewhere in Arabic or Farsi. The number of participants in the chat room fluctuated between 150 and 200 people. But that's the only number of people who bothered entering the chat. I suspect many more were watching anonymously. The majority of readable messages were things like S-T-A-R-T-T-T-T-T or G-O-G-O-G-O or something to that effect. After about a minute, a man with his face hidden behind a hockey mask appeared on the feed. I remembered him having dark brown skin and being very, very skinny, like starving Ethiopian skinny. Shortly after that, everyone was set on mute. Everyone except for one user by the name of Italian Goat, who I figured was the director of this show. And that's when the screaming began. She was blindfolded and tied to a wooden chair with her hands behind her back. A bigger, darker man dragged her by the hair until she sat dead center of the screen. I watched her try to struggle free from the ropes, but she was so tightly fastened that you could see the bruising. God knows how long that she had been tied like that. Finally, the bigger man took the blindfold off, and she stopped screaming. When she looked into the camera, she seemed to realize what was about to happen. She started crying and begging the two men in what I think was Arabic. Then a message popped up in the chat. Italian goat. Lay her sideways on the floor. The director issued his first command. The skinny man saw the message and related to the bigger man in his own language. Italian goat. Kick her in the stomach. The skinny man continued with his translations. Italian goat. Kick her in the face. The screaming got louder and louder. What the fuck was I watching? That was it for me. I reached for my cell phone, ready to dial 911. Italian goat. Stop on her chest. Italian goat. Tell her friend to kick harder. I paid good money for this. I was in so much shock at this point that I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. The kicking went on for another 10, 20, 30 seconds. It seemed as if it would last forever. Italian goat. throat. When I read the last message, the churning feeling in my gut intensified. No, 
no, no, no. I kept thinking, somebody has to stop this. I tried to type into the chat, but the input field was grayed out. The woman cried even louder when she heard the man relaying the last request. Italian goat. Wait. No. Not yet. The skinny man held one hand up to signal his partner to halt. The breathing returned to normal for a second, thinking the woman was spared, at least for the time being. Then the director continued. Italian goat. Take out her eyes first. The skinny man stared directly into the webcam. I couldn't see the entirety of his face, just the eyes, and a small patch of skin around each one. In his eyes, I searched desperately for the slightest hint of hesitation. Please, put a stop to this, I prayed, but I kept the mouse cursor hovered above the close button in case they did not. And then, a skinny man began typing and a second screen name popped up in the log. Admin. Another 500. My mind froze when I saw the number. 500. This woman was being tortured and possibly killed for a meager sum of $500. I was making as much every other week at the gas station and I was barely making minimum wage. If I could offer thousand to stop this, I would. I would empty out my savings account if it meant saving her life. I, I really would. I swear on my life. I'd pay anything to stop this madness. Italian goat. Okay. I quickly shut off the screen before I could see any more. I wish my common sense could have kicked in earlier. I ran out to the yard where I regurgitated about two meals worth of vomit. It had been a long time since I'd felt this sick from watching something. When I was in junior high, some friends showed me a clip from Rotten.com. It was the one where the man had his skull sliced in half by the rotator blades of a helicopter that he was in the midst of repairing. And then, over the years, I've seen more and more videos like that one. Enough that I don't get the urge to puke in my mouth anymore. But let me tell you this. Seeing a live footage of a real person being tortured is stomach-turning on a whole new level. When I was done spinning out the last bits of bile in my mouth, I heard screaming coming from my room. It was then that I realized in my haste to turn off the monitor, I hadn't forgotten to turn off the speakers as well. Her screams got worse and worse until finally I was able to reach behind the desk and disconnect the speakers from the computer. The silence that followed was unbearable. It was as if by my own hands I had sliced her, killed her. I felt remorse such as I had never felt before. I killed her. I thought to myself over and over again, I killed her. And the feeling was unreal. I had to find out if she was still alive. As I reached over to turn the screen back on, a voice inside my head begged me to stop. I don't want to see what I'm about to see. But before I could stop myself, my hand had already acted. The image on the screen was an image I will never, ever forget. The severed head of a woman sat there straight across from me, both eyes missing from their respective sockets. That face, that warped, mishappened face, have haunted me ever since. Even now, as I write this, I can 
feel her hollow eyes glaring at me from behind. I sleep with the lights on now, as well as the TV, but nothing helps. Right before I shut down the browser and reconfigured the network settings to access the good old regular internet, I remember seeing one last line on the chat line. It read, Admin. Thank you for watching. The next show will be up in one hour. I got his private message early yesterday morning. He saw my comment on his post and came to me for some guidance. He seemed troubled by how his warning had somehow turned into an advertisement for the shadow web. At first, I thought that he was just delusional. There are dozens of message boards out there dedicated to the deep web, even a couple of subreddits right here on Reddit. And still, this fellow is acting like he is solely responsible for leaking the deep web. I assured him that people were just playing along like they always do on r slash no sleep, and he needed not worry about it. But then, he tried to correct me. He insisted that the shadow web is not the deep web, nor is it the dark web. It is something far more sinister. Way more fucked up. Which was what he had said. Later in the evening, he gave me his phone number. He told me to send him a text if I wanted to be proven wrong. And with that, our volley of private messages ended. A quick reverse lookup showed that the area code was from a place called Valleysfield, Quebec, which is in Canada. It looked perfectly harmless, so I sent him a text. He replied within a couple of minutes. What he sent back was an MMS with a picture of a piece of paper, the one that the creepy customer had supposedly given him. The first thing I noticed about the slip was the font type. It looked as though it was printed directly from a notepad. I'm guessing that this person who gave him the slip had been carrying it around, so that way he could access the shadow web from public computers or cyber cafes. He probably had the steps memorized at one point and no longer needed it. The second thing I noticed was that the steps were, in fact, not for accessing the dark web. At least, not the dark web that I was familiar with. It took me about 45 minutes to locate the specific build of Netscape Navigator curiously required for getting into the sh.web gateway. I found a torrent for it on one of the deep web forums where I frequently lurked. It came with a Trojan horse, unsurprisingly, but I installed it anyway. Whoever tries to backdoor my machine would regret even trying. At last, I was connected to the fabled gateway, and to my surprise, I was wrong. This wasn't the deep web slash dark web after all, and he had every reason to be worried. Let me explain to you in layman's terms. If the deep web was the bad neighborhood in your town, then the dark web would be its haunted house, that abandoned mansion at the end of the one-way road with no street lamps. The shadow web, then, would be the windowless cellar at the end of a passage behind a hidden door in that very house. Before I go on, I want to clear some things up. When I left the comment on the original post that was just mentioned, that I frequently visited the dark web and someone left a comment calling me a monster, I'm not. I don't go there to look for scam victims or to distribute kitty 
I go there to find the people who do. My line of work prohibits me from elaborating, so I'll leave the rest to your imagination. After stopping by a few of the sites, actually spending the whole day, on the shadow web, I finally began to appreciate the gravity of the situation. I'll spare you the details, but suffice it to say, I have never been more convinced that cryptocurrencies should be outlawed. I came across one particular site called rumcake.sh.web, and from first glance, it resembled the one described from the post that you just heard. Then I saw the site was merely one of a dozen in a network of these torture room broadcasts. I called him back on the number that he had messaged me on. I just wanted to tell him that he was right about the shadow web, and that he did the right thing, and that the information which he had provided me ended up saving a lot of lives. But he didn't pick up. It's pretty late in Quebec, so I suppose that he would be sleeping. The more I looked into it, the more I realized that this wasn't something that I could tackle on my own. I needed to tell my superior about this. Since it was about 3am, I hesitated to call her, yet I was too excited to let this wait until morning. So I decided to send her an IM, telling her about the big fish, that I needed her help reeling in. She immediately responded. Call. The conversation that ensued was rather shocking. In short, our agency did know about the existence of the shadow web, but no leads have ever turned up to how to actually get in. Until now, that is. The posts that you heard before here on No Sleep had violated the shadow web's code of silence. On top of that, he was careless enough to use his regular Reddit account. There are some people who are probably very upset by his expose of the sh.web, from what I was told. His life is now in danger. Being somewhat of a rookie at the organization, I have been advised to stay out of the investigation. My boss warned that I too might end up with a crosshair on my head if I didn't take the proper measures to conceal myself. It is now 5am, and I still haven't heard back from him. I hope that he's okay. One last thing before I log off. For those of you who are trying to go to the dark web or the shadow web after hearing the story before this one, I strongly recommend that you disconnect your microphones and cover your webcams. Do not ever charge your cell phones with the USB port. Most importantly, don't ever try connecting again. So check this out. I've been a user of the deep web for quite a long time, going through the various deep sites and seeing what's out there. There are some interesting people and pages that exist, but if you don't know what you're doing, I really don't recommend getting involved in it. I've been in too deep for a while, and the story I'm about to tell you was at a time in my life where I was out of control and just doing stupid things. Back in the day, I used to be one of those deep and dark web users that may or may not have been involved in some questionable activity. Of this questionable activity, the worst was doing business with a website that was very similar to Silk Road. It wasn't Silk Road, but it was obviously trying to be, and as dumb as it sounds, the prices were more competitive than others. Thinking back to it now, 
that should have been a red flag. The bigger sites had methods of vetting and verification of their sellers. They knew who they were working with, and the security was definitely part of the pricing structure. But when you're a broke college kid that's addicted to certain medications, you don't really think too hard on the security of your dealer. Basically, your only thoughts are, do they have what I want, and can I afford it? So, obviously, I knew what I was doing back when I got involved with these sites and these people. I knew it was illegal, and I knew that I had no way of disputing if my dealer didn't come through, and I would have no manner of taking any legal action against the site or the seller. The site had an interesting system in place. The sellers wouldn't list what they had beyond a few cryptic user tags, and they had what they called the traffic light system. Basically, the seller could mark their stock based on a color, green was full, yellow was limited, and red was offline and not selling. If it was green, you could basically send them the money and get what you wanted, Yellow typically required a message to make sure that they had what you wanted, and red meant, don't contact me. It was actually pretty damn smart and cut out having to incriminate yourself by specifically listing what you had. And it also cut down on the communication requirements. You just bought what you wanted, and you moved on. In my time on this site, there was one user that I worked with regularly over the two years. They were dependable and, strangely enough, incredibly polite when I had to message them. I know that sounds stupid, but they typically signed their messages with have a nice day or thank you for your business. Not something you would expect from a person committed to doing something that's illegal. They were the only person I wanted to work with on this site and they always came through. In my time doing business with them, they had always been green or yellow. I can't recall once over the two years when they switched over to red. Well, that is until the last time that I put an order in with them. I got on the site as normal and saw that he had marked himself as yellow. No big deal. I just sent him a message, basically asking if my usual was available. Almost immediately after, his page had switched over to red. I was a bit annoyed at this as he'd always come through and I was, as I said, an addict. I went over to his page and sent him another message that basically said, Hey man, what gives? And within a few moments, I got a message back that said, to put it kindly, F off. Now this came as an honest surprise to me as, like I said before, he had always been so cordial. I responded with something like, Do you not want my money anymore? And I waited for about an hour to see if he sent a message back, but he never did. It was a few days later that I went back to see if maybe he had stock again. I think part of me seriously thought that the seller was just having a bad day, or maybe it was a partner of his that wasn't as polite. When I logged in, I saw that I had a message from him. I clicked it, and it said, I have your usual. Send me the money. I was a bit wary at first, but I was also naive and needed it to keep my mind focused and study for my exams. Despite my initial hesitation, I went ahead and I sent him the money. I replied, letting him know that the money was sent, and then I waited. I think I messaged him once or twice after that within the week, but he had been offline since our last interaction and hadn't changed his account from Red. About a week after our last interaction, I got the package. The box looked like it was heavily used and trashy. 
This was in a complete contrast from what I was used to, and when I opened it, it was lacking pretty much all of the security that the seller normally had. He would typically pack inconspicuous items in with the order, usually stuffed animals. I'm assuming it was because they worked as both security and padding. Instead, the box was full of packing peanuts and tissue paper. I dumped it out on the floor and I checked it, thinking that I was duped. But then I saw the pill bottle and an envelope with what appeared to be a letter. The first thing I did was open the letter. It said, Consider this your last order. Jimmy is out of the trade. Thank you for your business. I was a little pissed off since I was going to have to now find a new person on the site to work with, but at the same time it wasn't a huge deal. At least I had about 60 days before that was going to be a problem. That was my last thought until I grabbed the bottle and opened it. I removed the lid and I saw that inside the bottle were fingernails. I don't mean like fingernail trimmings. I mean fingernails that had been ripped out of the bedding of the finger. Ten of them to be exact. The edges of them looked like they had dried blood, which told me that they had been forcibly removed. It was then that the letter's meaning became a bit more dark, with Jimmy being out of the trade. And to answer any potential questions, I never went back to the site. I never went back to any drug sites on the deep web at all. This scared me to the point that I pretty much abandoned all illegal activity, and to those that are curious, no, I didn't go to the police. I wanted to. I wanted to tell them that it was possible that someone had been murdered, but how exactly does one explain that with what I had? I couldn't waltz into the precinct, slam a pill bottle full of fingernails down, and say, my drug dealer has been murdered. Technically, he could have pulled them out himself, which was likely not possible. So, anyway, that's my story. Stay off of the dark web. The deep web is probably okay. And don't do drugs. Nobody knows what rock bottom truly is until they've hit it. Being abruptly fired from a job that you've worked at for the past 10 years, and then catching your girl cheating on you with your replacement really makes a man think. Hell, my student loans aren't even paid off yet. What a shit show this life is. After a rather boozy night that consisted of sending out about four dozen resumes and horrendously written cover letters, I finally passed out. When I woke up the next morning, I decided to try to at least make some money at home while waiting for an interview. At that moment, I thought that the best way to go about it was completing those internet surveys that yielded $5 subway gift cards and other shit like that after about an hour of answering questions. I mean, I didn't have any other marketable skills that could have yielded immediate income. It was either that or waste the day away playing computer games. At least, I wouldn't have to pay for food. I did these surveys for about 5 hours before nearly passing out. It was way more excruciating than I originally anticipated. At the end of those five hours, I accumulated about $45 in cash and gift cards. $9 an hour. Not like I was making much more than that before. I was about to close my laptop up for the day and head to the bar in an attempt to drown out my melancholy. When I saw it, it shouldn't have even been noticeable. But for one reason or another, it was... At the bottom corner of the website that I was on, 
existed a tiny, singular advertisement. Maybe it was the simplicity that got to me. Plain black letters in a tacky font that read, Surveys for Cash. Overlapped and completely white background. At least they were direct with the message. One more couldn't hurt, I thought. Might as well scrape together a little bit more booze money before heading out. I sat down, clicked on the picture link, and prepared myself to grind through some more painstaking inquiries. The first two questions were simple enough. I guess they weren't really questions, but more like data collection. My name, age, and occupation. I thought it was kind of weird that they asked what my height and weight was, but it wasn't unheard of. The first real question was a different story, though. I must have stared at it, eyes wide and mouth agape, for God knows how long. What the actual hell? In plain English, this is what popped up on my screen. How strong is your urge to currently look behind you? There were five options below, ranging from not at all to overwhelming. There was no feasible reason why I should have been afraid at that moment, but I was. I tightened my breathing trying to make out any subtle noises behind me. There were none. After about maybe five minutes, I worked up the courage to look. There was nothing. I sighed in relief and scoffed at myself at the same time. This must have been some kind of a joke. However, I decided to entertain it, answering neutral and clicking on to the next question. And that's when I read, Why would you look behind you? I smirked, funny because simply typing in I don't know in the response box and once again clicking next. This was the third question. You're on a plane. Apart from you, there is only one other passenger who is sitting somewhere behind you. At some point, you get up to go to the washroom and find that the man is gone. You check to see if he is in the only bathroom on the plane, but he isn't. What do you do? Again, I must have stupidly stared at it for at least nearly ten minutes. Was this some kind of obscure personality test? I mean, it must have been, right? Right? I put in the same answer that I used for the last question. I don't know. It was true, but I didn't know. How was I supposed to answer that kind of shit, you know? I clicked next again, now more intrigued than anything. The fourth question went on like this. You wake up in woods unfamiliar to you. It's nighttime, and the moonlight provides you with only slight visibility. About 30 feet away from you, there is a small, dimly illuminated cabin. The door is open, and a smiling woman is motioning for you to come in. Do you go? Explain why. This question wasn't necessarily weirder than the last one, so my conjecture that this was some kind of odd personality test was still feasible. I actually made an attempt to answer this one, something along the lines of go into the cabin because there simply wasn't nowhere else to go. Once again, I clicked next, which I probably shouldn't have. The questions started getting more fucked up. They weren't too gory or explicit, not anything like that. They were just stranger, weirder, more psychologically disturbing. If you're wondering why the hell I kept going on, I can't really give you an explicit answer to that. I just feel like I had to. It was esoteric, 
a creeping sensation that I can't quite explain away. But I could never shake it, so I just went on. Some of the questions that stood out were, suppose that you wake up one night to find an elevator in your house. During every midnight after that, it opens up for five minutes, revealing an exact copy of yourself that gets progressively more injured as time goes on. Do you keep living like this? Or do you enter the elevator once and end it all? And, you're in a hotel room, but you are awoken by a rapid knocking on your window. You peek through the blinds, seeing what appears to be a man missing both of his eyes. He puts his mouth to the glass and tells you to kill the woman in the bathroom immediately. Do you listen to him? This one was one of my favorites. You are watching home movies with your mother. One of the tapes include footage of her being murdered by a masked intruder. Your mother simply laughs at the footage without saying anything. In your opinion, is this cause for concern? In addition to this insanity-induced shit, there were some rather disconcerting events happening in real life as well. I received a knock on the door about 30 minutes in. I looked through the people to find a guy staring there, frantically shaking his head and mouthing no while making direct eye contact with me. He looked terrified. Obviously, I didn't open the door. I received about 10 phone calls from somebody named The Auditor on my caller ID. They left a message every time, but each time was just a recording that consisted of somebody saying numbers through heavy static. Actually, it sounded more like screaming now than I'm thinking about it. About an hour into the thing, I was on the verge of a mental breakdown. I was petrified of looking behind me, even though there was no indication that anything should have been there. I heard soft scratching come from my vent at one point, so I moved my couch over it. Eventually, I reached what appeared to be the end of the survey. However, it wasn't a question. It was simply a statement. Don't let them in. They're not to be trusted. Almost as if it were on cue, I heard more knocking on my door about five seconds after reading this. As slowly and silently as I could, I moved over and looked through the peephole once again. It was a different person than the one that I'd seen earlier. She was a woman, looking to be in her mid-twenties. She was wearing a thick blazer despite it being around 90 Fahrenheit outside. She was also wearing sunglasses, so I could never really tell where she was actually looking. She eventually took a piece of paper out of her pocket and slipped it under the door. I looked down and read it. It's lying. Leave your apartment immediately. It's been about a half hour since. I can't bring myself to look at the computer screen nor at the woman outside. She's still there. I can see the shadows of her feet from underneath my door. I heard my bedroom window open a few minutes ago but I've since jammed the door shut with a chair. I can hear some sort of distorted muttering coming from behind it now. Maybe rock bottom wasn't so bad. But what the fuck am I supposed to do here? You've Googled yourself at some point or another. Admit it. There's nothing shameful about it. It's not worse than what I did. I searched my name on the dark web. Don't ever make that same mistake. 
I was 19 years old then. Liv, my girlfriend, and her family were kind enough to let me live in their guest bedroom at the start of that year. They liked the fact that I could fix most of their computer problems. Liv is a great person, and what she saw in a hacker who could never survive for long in a 9-to-5 world is beyond me. Their house was in a suburb only a few blocks away from a library and coffee shops with free Wi-Fi. These locations were convenient for my foregoing career as a digital outlaw. I used these resources until I was able to move out and get a small apartment on my own. After a string of demeaning jobs and abusive bosses, I found financial independence. I did this after I learned how to buy and sell things that I shouldn't have with the use of my Tor browser. I engaged in illegal transactions such as ordering counterfeit money and stolen IDs. I discovered that there was a large market for manufactured psychedelics. I often went to the skate park to sell these items off of the nethermost landscape of the World Wide Web. Business was good. A young man with years spent in foster care. I sought out activities which gave me a sense of control. A childhood of not having any will to do what you want to do. The ability to navigate the online world to get almost whatever I wanted afforded me a sense of power. It was all going well. Until one evening in July... I sat on the second level of a Barnes & Noble bookstore in a corner next to the self-help section. I also did my best work there. The place was starting to go under and I did not have to worry about the influx of patrons. Despite having a disguised IP address, I never wanted to risk a raid at home. The items were always shipped to a P.O. box instead of my unit number as well. In retrospect, these were all flimsy safety measures. They still gave me a sense of comfort even if they were a tad delusional. I made sure that there were no cameras mounted near where I sat. It was a small space out of the way of the general public. Hiding in plain sight was always my preferred method. I drank strong coffee out of an oversized styrofoam cup. After 15 minutes of searching, I grew bored. I typed in my name, Joshua Wells. An input of my identity on the part of the web should be an indicator of how successful and arrogant I had become. I did not expect Wikipedia to be among the results, but it was the third link down. The first one involved a ghost tour in New Jersey. The guide had a similar name. The second was a gore website that I was not interested in. While I had been a thrill seeker, I wasn't out to consume media which capitalized on hurting others. I clicked on the third article link because of the title. It was about a television show. It read, The Short Life of Joshua Wells. At first, the title did not startle me, since there are plenty of others with the same name. Recaps of ten episodes were on the page. The first paragraph illustrated how the series did not continue past season one. I read the summary of the first episode for the sake of passing time. Episode one... Joshua's father is a known and feared gang member. His mother is a helpless addict. She attempts to use her own son as a drug mule on a plane flight from Boston to California. She had hopes of making a profit by dealing in narcotics to a major criminal enterprise on landing. The authorities intercepted them. Their son goes to CPS. He goes to a safe harbor for kids. The synopsis struck me as very close to home. Who wrote or directed the show was not listed, but it did state the air date. 
the month and year given matched the era where an identical set of circumstances had befallen me. The name of the center I was in was even called Safe Harbor. I was too young to remember much, but the facts were precise. I gulped and tried to shrug it off as an unusual coincidence. I read the second episode summary. Episode 2 We follow Joshua on his 15th birthday. He goes to a juvenile detention facility for the first time after he attacks a teacher by throwing a desk at him. Although he missed, the instructor still pressed charges against him since he didn't like the student very much. He befriends a troublemaker on the inside named Ian. They escape, but not before a massive brawl with the other teens ensued inside the facility. It ends with the two captured. I felt the hairs on the back of my arms stand up. It was uncanny to me how similar the events were to my own experiences. A slight dizziness overtook me, but I went on to the third, unable to keep my eyes from skimming. Episode 3 Joshua is free. Joshua decides to break and enter an old man's upper-class home after scouting the place for days. His goal is to take the many Rolex watches from the top drawer of the old man's dresser. When he enters the house, Joshua discovers how the owner did not take his vacation cruise trip as planned. The man was asleep in his bedroom until Joshua wakes the victim by accident. Joshua runs away. He gets chased by the homeowner outside where the elderly man dies of a heart attack in the street. I felt my chest tighten. It was all true. But I had never shared that story with anyone else. It was one of my most guilt-ridden memories. I read the next two. Episode 4 Joshua has nightmares of an old man crawling out of a ditch and choking him to death. He complains about night terrors to one of his counselors, who recommended a doctor. He ends up selling anti-anxiety pills after he does not like the way that they make him feel. A girl he asks out overdoses and goes to the hospital. While she survives, he feels terrible, but not enough to stop dealing. He takes his earnings and buys a PC. He takes lessons on how to breach other people's privacy from a group of credit card thieves he met in the mall. Episode 5 Joshua discovers the dark web. He uses it to hustle low-level street drugs at first. He later reads headlines about some of his accomplices getting arrested. He still continues to engage in illicit activity. I looked at the air date for episode 6. It was the 24-hour period that I was currently living through. Episode 6 Joshua goes into a bookstore to poach the internet and try to make some money. He does not realize there is a man with a shaved head in a Carhartt t-shirt below him pursuing the sci-fi aisle. The stranger is actually an undercover FBI agent. The government worker has a microphone and camera attached beneath his shirt. He is surfeying for the perpetrator, even though he has not singled out who he is looking for yet. An arrest commences where they tackle, punch, and taser Joshua, place him in handcuffs. My hand shook, gripped an Eckert Toll volume to appear less conspicuous and opened it. I leaned my head over the railing to stare at the ground floor below me. A man who matched the description given by the article was there. His shirt was baggy and hid what I knew to be a gun on his hip. He held the paper back to his hands. I pulled out my phone. I pretended to have a conversation with an imaginary business associate about stocks. 
I folded my laptop with my free hand and went down the escalator. I strolled towards the back where there were stacks of hardcover tomes on history. I found an unsecured door and walked through it. I was in the warehouse. Unopened boxes were stacked all around. I did not spot any workers and made a run for the rear entrance. I sprinted down a wide alleyway between the buildings and rows of motels. I passed an art gallery and a liquor store before my heartbeat slowed. Along the way, I found a closed vegan restaurant called Malentley's Eatery. The place was black on the inside, but its neon sign still glowed. A picnic table sat on the lawn out front. I stationed myself out there, and I opened my laptop again and connected to their free Wi-Fi without issue. I scanned the rest of the chronology. The remaining episodes were all future time periods. I wiped perspiration away from my forehead as I read the rundown of the next episode. Episode 7 Labeled a darknet market operator in the media, three of the seven charges thrown at him led to convictions. This includes conspiracy to traffic narcotics. He gets out early after he agrees to cooperate with different agencies. He becomes a consultant for cybersecurity awareness and a social engineering expert. Following a keynote speech given out of town, he comes home. His girlfriend Olivia and her family have been murdered. My eyes strained and I felt my breath grow shallower. Episode 8 Joshua navigates his house. The walls had dried blood. Every corner vandalized. Olivia's throat is slit. Her body is over the couch in the living room. Her parents had socks stuffed in their mouths and deep stab wounds in their stomachs. Joshua calls the police. He's treated as the number one suspect in the media for days on end. He is finally cleared, but the psychological damage is too much to bear. I pondered the words. Though I was still young, it is true that live meant everything to me. Episode 9 Joshua goes to a psychiatric ward. He stares at the padded walls as though they will converse with him. Detectives do come to him to visit with the hopes of gleaning some kind of further information. They tell him they know the aftermath of the massacre he stumbled upon was the work of an active serial killer. The murderer has remained unidentified. Episode 10 Joshua leaps out the window. He breaks his ankle. An adrenaline dump allows him to move across the field and onto the nearest highway. He goes into traffic. A long-haul truck careens across him and takes out a line of vehicles. He goes to the nearest lake, where he weighs his own pockets down with stones. He waits until nightfall and walks into the abyss. The last image that we see of him is a hand breaking the surface of the water. Starlight glints on his skin before his fingers submerge below the surface. His last few swallows of water create pockets of bubbles which rise to the top. I absorbed what the rest of my existence would look like. Four black SUVs pull up and circle around me in the parking lot, and in black suits and the undercover agent from the bookstore ran at me. Even though I did not resist, they still threw me to the ground. They dislocated my shoulder and kicked my jaw a handful of times before they finally handcuffed me. I did get my prison time reduced after I agreed to help catch people who were just like me. After my release date, I have tried to revisit the link without luck. 
I fail to understand how the article existed in the first place. I have read how high-level stress can open up insights and portals into the unknown. I would bank on the latter, though sometimes I think that it isn't for me to know. I do not want to give in to what destiny has written for me. My escape from the bookstore has given me confidence that I can change the outcome of the dark web's prophecy, even if only for a little while. Or did I only extend the inevitable for a fraction of time? Fate itself, in regards to our stories as individuals, is not written in stone. It is malleable. At least, that's what I tell myself. This positive thought is the only thing that keeps me going. I should visit Liv's house now. She hasn't answered my texts all morning. <laughs>